chapter 16, Gospel of Luke chapter 16. Have you ever noticed how much the Bible talks about financial resources and money? There's actually over 2,000 references in the Bible about finances and stewardship. And then, and then Jesus, when he comes onto the scene, oftentimes he gives parables. In fact, Jesus gives 38 parables. 16 of those parables deal with the subject of money, stewardship, how you handle your finances. In fact, there are far more verses on the subject of money than there are faith and prayer. Uh, when Jesus is speaking and recorded in the Gospels, like one out of every ten verses, he's dealing with the subject of a person and their money. It's actually more than he talked about heaven and hell combined. So why did Jesus talk so much about money? And it's for this profound reason. How we handle money reveals what we believe in our hearts. How we handle money reveals what we believe in our hearts. Now, as we've been going through the book of Romans, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, it's kind of like the apex. All of Romans is pointing out how good and great and awesome, powerful Jesus is, how he's the one that provides righteousness, gives life. He gives his spirit. Romans 12 says, in response to Christ, trusting in him, it's calling for a life, a life of worship, that we are living sacrifices. We're no longer conformed to this world. We're not being squeezed into the world's patterns, but rather we're being transformed by the renewing of our mind that we're literally living differently. And so when we come to even Romans 14, like we saw just a couple weeks ago, it actually says that you and I are going to be held in account. We're going to be judged, not a judgment for salvation, like whether or not you're truly going to spend eternity with God, because that's been settled at the cross. And when you believe in Jesus, but in a judgment or an evaluation, like, what did you do with the resources that I gave you? What did you do with the opportunities that were put before you? And, you know, we're all pretty good about that. We're like, yep, uh, I want to trust Jesus with my life. I sing these songs. I want to worship you. God, you need to help me. The one area that people are most reluctant to just give fully over to the Lord is the area of their personal finances. So what do we need to know in order to be good managers of the money that God has entrusted to us? Well, open up your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 16, look at verse 10. First thing you need to know is that God is committed to our growth. So Jesus speaking, chapter 16, verse 10, he says, He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. If you can be trusted, do a good job with a little then you're a real good candidate to be given more. Why? You've proven yourself to be trustworthy. And, he says, and he who is unrighteous or selfish, you're not focused on God's priorities, not God-honoring, in a very little thing, is unrighteous also in much. If, if you do a poor job, you're all selfish, you think it's all about you with a little, well then, you're going to act that way when you got more, if you get more. And so you, just so you see that God is committed to your growth, Jesus starts asking questions, penetrating questions, questions to create introspection, to get you to really be thinking about your attitude and your approach toward finances. So he says, verse 11, Therefore, if you've not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, or mammon, maybe in some of your Bibles, 
Who will entrust true riches to you? If you can't be trusted with money, then why should God give you real riches? Like an opportunity for ministry, the ability to really invest in other people's lives, real resources to be used for his kingdom. Why would he want to do that? And verse four, in verse 12, he says, And if you've not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, speaking of God giving resources to you, if you can't be faithful with that, he says, who will give you that which is your own? And the idea is that you will be rewarded in the life to come based upon your performance here with what God has given you. And so God's committed to your growth. And kind of like this, if you're a leader or you're a manager, you hire people, you know this principle. The best indicator for future performance is what? I heard it. Past performance. Best indicator for future performance? Past performance. You're looking to bring someone on your staff. You're thinking about hiring this gal or the guy. Well, what did they look like? How have they been functioning? How have they been behaving? Well, God operates on that exact same principle. What did you do with what I've given you? Let me give you a second thing you need to know. A person can only serve one master. Look at verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, and that's kind of a rhetorical device, or else he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You can't have it both ways. You can, you can only serve one. And so what Jesus is challenging us to do is consider who are you serving? You're either going to have devotion to me as master and Lord of your life or something or someone else is going to take over because you can only have one master. Now, in the ancient world where most of them were slaves, they're like, whoa, this is super clear. Obviously, you can only have one master. God is saying, am I going to be the master and Lord of your life? Now, the word wealth, maybe some of your Bibles has mammon. It's really an interesting word when you study its etymology, its history, how it developed. Originally, mammonus, that's the Greek word, mammon, actually meant that which you entrust to another's care. So if like you had some money and you're like, I'm going to give it to this banker because I'm going to entrust it to him to take care of it. That was your mammonus. That was your wealth. That was your money that you were entrusting. Mammon. But what happened is the word changed from that which you entrust to another's care to this. That in which a person puts their trust. Mammon. It became like a virtual god. And so it just shows even for how the word developed. It's what happens in people's lives. They put their trust in money. And I'll tell you, your wealth makes for a very good or at least an alluring alternative Messiah. It's got a lot of promise. You don't even have to have money to love it. And it's calling after you. Put your trust in me. Even though it says on our money, in God we trust, more people are trusting in the bill than in God. And you can't have it both ways. You can't walk in two direct, different directions, can you? No, it doesn't work. And you can only have one master. So who will it be? He says, you cannot serve God and wealth. You're going to have to pick. You see, 
the reason Jesus talks so much about money is this. How we handle money reveals what we believe in our hearts. And let me tell you something else that you need to know. God knows our heart. You know, God not only sees the outward behavior, what's taking place, he actually knows what you're thinking, you're processing, your individual decisions. He actually knows what's going on in your mind right at this very moment. And you see it right here. Look at verse 14. Now the Pharisees, these were Jewish leaders. They were the far right. They were the ultra conservative. They dressed religious. They behaved in such a way that set themselves apart from others. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, did you see that? They were listening to all these things and they were scoffing at him. If you're a lover of money, you mock and scoff at what Jesus is saying. And they did so because they believed this. They believed that you could be devoted to both God and wealth. And so Jesus said to him, them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. You make it just you justify your behavior in front of others. But God knows your hearts. You might want to underline that. For that which is highly esteemed among men, loving money, having your whole world and life orient around it, wealth is detestable in the sight of God because there's only one God. And Jesus is saying, I'm it. See, God knows our hearts. And the Pharisees, they believed that you could be devoted to God, which they certainly saw themselves fully given over to God, and at the same time, fully given over to wealth and its pursuit. In fact, this is how it got twisted in their justification. They believed that the rich people were God's favored people. They gave them wealth. And so they wanted wealth anywhere they could get it. And so they kind of believed that they were God's favorite children. And they like, because we've got the money. But they, they loved their money. What's happened is, is that they became devoid of real, authentic relationship with God. And generally what you see is they just become legalistic. You follow rules and rituals and routines. You miss out on relationship. Why? Because you've got the wrong master. And so what Jesus is doing, he's directly confronting that. You can't have two masters and God knows your heart. Friends, this is a very serious issue. You and I are going to be held in account for what we do with the resources we have. So how do we become faithful managers of God's finances? Well, we oftentimes talk about our money, right? Our finances, our 401k. Let me tell you something. It's not yours. It's God's. He's letting you use it. You can't take it with you. He's entrusted some resources, much or little, to you. So how do you become a good manager of God's finances. I'm just going to give you a brief overview, but I'll tell you, this will be life-changing if you put these principles into play. Because God is fully intended to bring us to the fullness of maturity in Christ. First principle, you need to yield daily, okay? And this happens when you actually say Lord and mean it. Sometimes we just say Lord and we forget that we're actually calling him God, sovereign one, master. It begins like when you begin the day. If, you don't have, if you're not in the pattern of beginning your day yielding to God, can I just really encourage you to do that? Maybe get down on your knees or, or whatever. Just begin your day approaching God. Thank him for the day. Say, God, I want to give you my life. Just do your work 
through me. I give myself to you. I yield myself to you. Just begin, just even two minutes, being quiet and still before God. Enjoy God's love for you and give yourself fully to Him because all things belong to God. Psalm 24 verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Everything belongs to God. And your wealth is really just a stewardship that has been entrusted to you. Now, that word steward is kind of a new word to you. It just means a person who manages another person's financial affairs, their property, their resources, their wealth. That's what a steward is. That's what you are. And so what we do is we get we receive resources, oftentimes through a paycheck, but there may be other means of revenue stream in your life, other resources that you have. You want to thank God for these things. You want to recognize these are yours and you've entrusted them to me. And I praise you and I thank you and I give myself fully to you. Let me give you a great verse. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. It says this, Make sure your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. Free from the love of money, being content. Not always clamoring up, like, they got a nicer car, a nicer home, they got nicer clothes. Be just content with what you have. For he says this, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. I'll not desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. I am God, and I want to be Lord of your life. I'm not going to leave you. Be content. Let your heart be free from the love of money. Yield daily. Let me give you a second principle. You want to be a good manager of God's finances? Work diligently. A primary way to acquire money is what? It's through work. And it's really God's gift to humanity. You and I, we are designed for work. Even before the fall, even before sin makes its entrance into our universe, we are what? Working. God has actually designed us for work. It not only provides an income for our life, but it is an opportunity to utilize the gifts and the skills and the talents He has given us for His glory. Okay? And so we're designed for work, and we work diligently. We work unto the Lord. God provides resources. So whatever you're doing throughout the week, you do it for the glory of God, and you work diligently at what you're doing. Proverbs 28, verse 19 says this, He who tills his land will have plenty of food, but he who follows empty pursuits will have poverty in plenty. You work hard, you apply yourself in the area that God has given you to work, you're probably going to make it. But if you're just kind of chasing just willy-nilly, what game can I do, how can I entertain myself, and you're avoiding work at all costs, It can be a hard life for you. So you work diligently. It's being a faithful manager of of God's finances. Let me give you a third. Budget wisely. This is huge. Even some people are kind of surprised. Like he's like, well, what? Budget? And you're actually telling us like at church we should be budgeting? I mean, isn't that kind of worldly? Not if you're reading this text. You better have a budget because you're actually a manager of the resources that God has entrusted to you. If you do not have a well-thought-out plan on what to do the money, with money that God has entrusted to you, I can assure you a lot of other people have one for you. And you're going to slip into a system. Budgeting could be defined this way. It is a method of worrying before you spend instead of afterwards. The people that have budgets, they're like, I'm not sure we can afford that. How does that work? Uh, we've kind of allocated in these different areas. I don't know if we can do it. People that don't have a budget, they just spend, put it on the old credit card, then they get these bills like, ah, how are we going to pay for all this stuff? Life is so expensive. You make a choice. Now, 
many people, you're going to find that as your income increases, their lifestyle just goes right in tow. A lot of people, actually, not only they might see income increasing, but their lifestyle exceeds, their expenses exceed their income. They don't have financial margin. Okay, and what happens is they're upside down. And if they ever had some sort of hiccup, they didn't get a paycheck, the bonus didn't come through, uh, they got laid off, we're in total turmoil. You know why? We're living way beyond our means. You always want to live below your means. And the issue for financial margin, it's not income. It's lifestyle. If you ever wonder, like, how is it that some people, they, they, they seem to kind of ride along, even through the rough times, do you know why? You know how they do that? It's a choice. They made the choice. They live below their means. If you don't realize that everybody has financial limits, you set the financial limit. Don't let the culture set the financial limit. If you do, if you just are kind of spending, you have no budget, you're just spending, buying, impulse, making this purchase... What happens is you think you're pursuing the American dream, but it becomes the American nightmare because our culture will take you to the brink of bankruptcy. And some of you experience that. And it is painful. Why? You just are spending? You have no budget? You have never thought this through? Scriptures are calling us. Jesus is imploring us. I want to be Lord of everything of your life, including your finances. When we do premarital counseling at our church, one of the assignments that we give our, our young couples or they're getting married is we give them a budget and we send them away and they, you come back and have it all filled out. We don't necessarily have to see it, but we want you to think through every aspect of your finances. They come back and usually they're like kind of in shock, like we can't even afford to live. You know, they, mama and daddy have been paying for everything and what is, insurance and like they're like, man, that costs a lot of money. Everything, clothing, they've not even thought about these things. Like Christmas gifts, like, oh, where's that going to come from? You know why we do that? Because we're trying to prepare marriages for a lifetime, and one of the biggest crises marriages face is how they deal with finances. Let me give you a really simple formula for financial well-being. It is income, what you got coming in, minus giving, minus taxes, minus Debt repayment minus savings equals net spendable income. You have a number coming in. Shouldn't be a mystery, right? You know what's coming in. You've got giving. You've got taxes. You have to have a way to pay for your taxes. Don't just think like, well, they're going to do it around Christmas time and just, a bunch of money's just going to show up. My aunt's going to bail me out or something like that. No, you've got to have a plan how you're going to pay your taxes. And it's really interesting. Our government has it structured that if you give right and that if you actually save right, you will actually pay less taxes than you normally would. Then you also have to have a means of addressing debt. If you've got consumer debt, you've got a house payment, you have to have a way of tackling that. You have to understand compound interest and that it is working against you. Consumer debt is like a huge drain on your financial well-being. And so you've got to have a way of addressing that. Don't think like, well, I, I'm making the bare minimum payment. Friends, you are, you are buying that toy that you bought like three or four times over and over and over again 
You want to get rid of that debt, and you do not want to have credit card debt again. And you also want to have some savings. You've got to recognize that your, your future ability to work at some point is going to be limited. If you think like, well, you know, I'm a hard charger, I'm in fit, you know, and I'm, I'm probably going to be humming at the same way about age 95. Probably not. I mean, yeah, you'll be there with your walker and stuff like that, but you're not going to be able to do your job like you are now. It's just not going to happen. And if you're like, well, I got Social Security. I got it covered, right? Okay, do you, does anybody know when Social Security runs out? Does anybody happen to know? 2033. It's done. Unless there are some radical changes that take place, there is no Social Security. And the other thing is that people are shocked. We're like, well, the government was going to take care of me. And then you're like, what is this piddly paycheck? This is your Social Security. I can't live on that. You know, you can't, you need to understand that yeah, you got maybe Social Security, maybe coming. You do need to save and, and make your money work for you. Just like compound interest works against you with debt, there are investments that you can make. Mutual funds, stock, property. There's all sorts of different ways that you can invest to make your money work for you. And you want to do it. And people are like, well, boy, Grant, that, that's, that's not trusting God, right? No, actually, Jesus expects you to make the most of your money. Remember uh, the parable of the talents? Remember that Jesus talks about this master. He's a wealthy owner of lots of stuff. He gives all these resources to some of his servants. He says, I want you to go and work with this, and I'm going to come back and check and see how things are going. And remember, he comes back, and you know some of the guys did exactly what he said, and they made a lot more money, and he was really happy with them. He gives them a lot more. And then remember the one guy who buried it in the ground? How did Jesus handle with that? He goes, you know what? This is really sorry. You know who I am then you should have ought to have put my money in the bank and on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. You are foolish. You are not a good steward. You're not a good manager. You should have been smart enough to put it in the bank, but you didn't. So you want to invest. You want to make the most of the money and you're trusting God to give you guidance to do just that. Saving, giving, guess what? These are habits. They're ongoing habits. It's just a little bit, but you've got the process going on. So you want to live below your means. You don't want to spend what you don't have. Let me give you some good resources. Um, there's a lot of them out there, but there's like Ron Blue's book, The New Master Your Money Workbook. It does a really good job kind of talking about stewardship principles, investments, wills, debt, insurance. Another one, Dave Ramsey's The Total Money Makeover. That's a really good resource. And it's got a lot of great war stories of just everyday people like you and I and how they've overcome debt. We've had people in our church that have done this. They've given testimonies, how they come out of significant debt. It'll help you to do that. And it really works on addressing debt and behavior modification. And then another one, Randy Alcorn's Money, Possessions, and Eternity. This kind of gives you a big, big picture orientation. Focuses on the heart, Okay helps you understand a biblical worldview regarding your finances, addressing issues like overspending. There's Crown Financial Ministries. There's financial advisors. Just find some people. We've got a lot of them in our church that are actually pretty good with their money. Just, hey, can I ask you some questions and learn from you? But let me assure you, you are going to be held in account with what you have, little or much. You want to be a good manager. Let me give you another one. If you want to be a faithful manager of God's finances, you want to learn how to give graciously. Jesus said one of the primary ways to know what's going on in a person's heart is to look what they're doing with their finances. See, where your money goes, that's where your heart is. That's what Jesus said, right? 
Luke 12, verse 34. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You don't want to know where your heart is, just look where your money's going. Our giving, our giving is an expression of worship to the Lord. It's an expression of worship and devotion. Let me give you a text. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, verse 7. It talks about in the Bible grace-motivated giving. He says, Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Giving is to be done cheerfully, and actually the New Testament does not prescribe that it has to be a certain percentage. 10% is a great benchmark, and a lot of healthy, mature believers use 10%. But it could be more. The, the New Testament doesn't prescribe and say it has to be this amount. But when you give, you give to the furthering of God's kingdom. When you give, you say that, God, you're more important than even my money. I give to you as an act of worship and devotion to you. Proverbs 3, 9 says, Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. And so this is what it looks like in my life. And I I actually got started after I became a believer at the University of Oregon. And I was broke. I was so broke. Just ask Karina. Like, I could hardly afford a quarter to call her, okay? Sorry. And, but I, I learned that I'd write a check, didn't have a lot, put myself through school, and, and to give. And it may not have been much, but it started a pattern in my life. And, and even to this day, what I generally do is when I have my offering, I like have it in my hand, and I'm like, God, I, I want to give this to you as an expression of worship. Everything I have, and you are so good, I am not sure how you actually do this, but you do it. And I want to give back to you as a worship. Maybe you're an online giver and you've got things set up. Every time you see that hit, you're giving, you stop right there and just say, God, I want my life to honor you in every respect. And I, I thank you for the privilege it is to further your kingdom, to make your name great. Really what you want to do is you want to become a conduit of blessing. And giving is one of great, God's great antidotes to covetousness. We're always just holding on and coveting something. Uh, there's a book called Run With Horses in which uh, Eugene Peterson writes of this account where he was watching this family of birds. They're on a dead uh, tree, and it's got this limb that's going over this lake, and about four feet from this branch where these birds are is the lake. And there's the family of birds, and there's this mama bird and these little baby birds, and there's three of them. And all of a sudden, the mama bird, I guess, she uh, starts pushing and pecking one of these little fledglings off the branch, you know, like, get out of my space, you know. And it's like, and all of a sudden, the bird's like, falls off and like about ready to hit the water. But then its little wings start flapping and it starts flying, right? Well, mama's like, good, next. And, and then she goes after the next one. There's the same sort of result. Well, the third one, you know, you watch the siblings all kind of like, where do they go? You know what I'm saying? I'm not going anywhere. So he locks in talents. And the mom is pecking and pushing the little bird. And the bird is holding on to everything for dear life. Something happened where he like, temporarily let go, but he spun and he's upside down. He's hanging right over the lake. And so what does the mama bird do? She starts pecking at that, those talons. And pretty soon the bird, just, the little fledgling just gives up. But then it starts flying. That's really interesting. You see, birds... They got feet. They can walk. They got talons. They can cling on to things. But what's the essence of being a bird? Flying, right? 
You see, the mature adult knew that these birds were meant to fly. She was moving, pushing, leading them to experience fullness of life as they're designed. I want to tell you something. You and I, God wants us to fly. Giving is what we do best. God wants us to be generous, to live in grace, receiving, giving, trusting, living, flying by faith. That's what God wants us to do. You need to understand from this text that there is a cord that is attached from your wallet to your heart. Did you ever notice that? There's a cord directly related. See, what you and I do with our finances, that tells us a lot about what's going on in our heart. When you invest in Coca-Cola or Intel, you're really interested in what's going on with Coca-Cola or Intel, right? Man, they're doing well. Guess what? You're doing well. You're interested in what's going on. You want to know what the next product is coming out, right? Why? Because that's where your money is. Well, let me tell you, when you start investing in God's kingdom, you start giving regularly. Not just token amounts, but like, like real amounts. Amounts that you're noticing. Amounts that you're budgeting. You're very interested. Like, what's God doing now? How can I be involved? You have a huge interest in God's kingdom because why? The Lord is the master of all of your life, including your finances. You've got a great deal of interest in that. D. James Kennedy tells a story about Peter Marshall, who many of you are familiar with him. He was the chaplain of the U.S. Senate in the 1940s and the mid-40s. Uh, he also was a pastor in Washington, D.C. One of the... Uh, on one day, there's a guy that came up to Peter Marshall and said, Hey, listen, I've got to talk to you about a problem. Listen, when I was making $20,000, I was able to give $2,000, you know, like 10%, and it worked. But this is my problem. Now, I am making $500,000 a year. I mean, and back in the 40s, that had been a lot of money. And he says, There is no way that I could give 50000 Peter Marshall says, man, you're right. You've got a serious problem. I believe we should pray about this. You want to pray? Yeah, let's pray. So they bow their heads, and Peter Marshall, with great boldness and authority, prays, Dear Lord, this man has a problem, and I pray that you will help him. Lord, reduce his salary back to the place where he can afford to tithe. You know, and can't you just see that guy like starts choking the pastor, you know what I'm saying? Like, Friends, I tell you this. Because God wants to turn our lives into conduits of blessing. You want to be a good manager of the resources that God has entrusted to you? You want to learn how to give graciously. Let me give you another principle. You want to spend carefully, okay? You want to avoid debt on depreciating assets. You want to break the pattern of instant gratification. I see it, I need it, I buy it, okay? You want to do some research. You want to exercise some self-restraint. I want to say something. Just because it says sale doesn't mean that you need to buy it. Okay, and I see some folks taking some notes for their spouse here or something like that. Just because it says sale doesn't mean, oh, i got to have it on sale. It won't be on sale next week. Hey, it's going to be fine. Do you really need it? Ask this question. Do I really need this today considering what it will cost me in the future? Do I need this today? And then, you know, of course, we got these things called credit cards. And the whole idea of, of financial well-being or exercising self-control of finances pretty much goes out the d- window because we have these folks that have these credit cards. They are, they are actually poor credit risk. They're terrible managers of their money. They shouldn't have these credit cards, but they have them. And a credit card company knows this, that if they can get you $800 in debt, for most Americans, 
they have you for life, you'll never be able to repay it. And they know that. And they own you. And they make a ton of money on you. They're so happy that you are spending money that you don't have because they own you. And you become their servant, in a sense, for life. Let me give you another principle. You want to be a faithful manager of God's finances? You want to monitor regularly. Imagine this. Let's say you got a ton of money. And you hire yourself a, uh, a manager to manage your resources. And you say, listen, I'll, I want you to live off this. Go ahead, whatever living expenses you need. And I don't want you to live like living in poverty, just whatever you need. And then, uh, but I want you to invest. I want, to make, I want you to make good use of my money. I'm going to come back in a year and see how things are going. I'm sure enough to come back in a year and you look and come, hey, how's it going? Well, uh, you know, uh, your manager's like, I, I, spent, I bought something. I know I did this. Well, what did, what did you invest in? You know, I never really got around to the investing part. What would you do with that person? You'd fire them, right? They're, they're terrible. And yet, this is what happens. There's a lot of folks that if you ran a corporation like you run your personal finances, you'd probably go to prison for misuse of funds. You need to have some understanding of where your money is going. If you're going to live on a budget, you've got to know what's happening. There's some really good resources that are available. Uh, my wife and I use Quicken, but there's uh, a lot of folks use Mint. You can download it. It's free. Microsoft Money. Uh, Dave Ramsey just came out with a new resource just to easily track where your money's going. It's called Every Dollar. But you want to track it, and if you are married, you always want to be talking about it. There should be no mystery. Money is something like we talk about we're on the exact same page. And then finally, let me tell you this. If you want to be a good manager, a faithful manager of the resources God's entrusted to you, you want to enjoy thankfully. Really? That's in the Bible? To actually enjoy what God's given me? Absolutely. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world, that is all of you, not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Did you get that? He gives you things. He wants you to enjoy it. And he goes on to say, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. God wants you to actually enjoy what you have. And you know how you enjoy it? You have Christ as the Lord of your life. You are thankful for what you have. I mean, don't take your, your apartment, your house, your car, your clothes for granted. It's okay to thank God over and over for these things. I will also tell you this. The scripture makes it clear. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 25. You can't enjoy life apart from God. It says, for, those who can, for who can eat and have enjoyment without him? If you do not know Christ, you're not trusting in Him as Savior from sin, Lord of your life, you don't have real enjoyment and you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're hollow, you're shallow, you've, and some of you have tried to make it out of money and it doesn't actually satisfy. That's because you were meant to know Christ, to trust Him, to know Him as Lord of your life. You see, friends, your money, money matters. And money is an alluring alternative Messiah. You don't want money as your master. You want the God of salvation, peace, perspective, power, forgiveness, and hope. And the reason that God gives us money is 
to demonstrate that God is more important to us and more precious to us than money. If you got money, that's not, it's not, not wrong to have money. It's not wrong to have a lot of it. It's not a sin. Actually, it's a matter of grave responsibility, and it really is a matter of prayer. Dr. Carl F.H. Henry, in a 1990 interview, said this, I don't think that God despises riches. In fact, he gives them to us. What he despises is the misuse of them, and he rewards stewardship. Friends, this passage, the book of Romans, it's calling us to live all of life, including our finances, under the lordship of Jesus. And friends, we're on a journey together. At Fellowship, we're watching God take us like a tree. We're seeking deep roots in Christ, and we are growing and maturing. And that includes how we handle our finances, because God wants us to experience the fullness of maturity, the joy of knowing Christ in every respect. We're about ready to embark on phase two. Lord willing, by God's grace, a building is going to emerge just right on this side. That's going to be all sorts of ministry needs. Children are going to hear about Jesus, adult rooms, community space, an office that actually works. I mean, all sorts of cool things are going to happen. But friends, this is a journey together. It is a spiritual journey. One in which all of us need to be involved and to do so together. Winston Churchill said, we make a living by what we get. We make a life by what we give. Now, all giving is anonymous at Fellowship, but it's not unknown to him. So let the Lord be your master because you see how we handle money reveals what we believe in our heart. Now, this morning, we have the privilege of actually uh, hearing from uh, one of our young couples. We've got Brian and Aaron Davis, and uh, they're going to talk a little bit just about their own journey here. So, Brian and Aaron, if I can just invite you to come forward here. Thank you. I think many of you know Brian and Aaron, and they're going to just share a little bit about some of their experiences. Thank you, Brian and Aaron, for being with us. Thank you, guys. Thanks. All right. So, Brian and Aaron, first of all, I'd like to, just for folks that may not know a little bit of your story, could you just give us like the one-minute version? How did you guys really come to trust and know Christ? Well, thank you. I really enjoy looking back on my testimony and what God has done in my life. I grew up in Dallas, so the middle of the Bible Belt, but my house did not resemble the Bible Belt. Uh, I went to church once my entire life before I went to Baylor, and then at Baylor, um, I, the first night I was there, um, Louis Giglio, who many of you might know, Louis Giglio was doing a revival. And I'd never, again, I've been to church once. I didn't have any friends or neighbors or anybody that I knew of, at least, that was a, a Christian or engaging me in my faith. And now I have Louis talking about salvation. And there's, I have two Christian roommates as a freshman, right off the bat. And I have upperclassmen who are installed as leaders over us who are asking questions and, and asking me things that I thought were extremely strange at the time because I, I had no way to comprehend all this. And then as a freshman, I took Old Testament right off the bat. And our first night's reading assignment was Genesis 1 through 25. And the second night was Genesis 26 through 50. I didn't have a Bible. I had to borrow my roommate's Bible. But I had to read it all because I didn't know what it was about. And so that started a process for a full year of, of, of reading and being engaged by people, asking a lot of questions, just thinking through and, and processing the God of the Bible. And so then the following year, after another one of uh, Louis Giglio's Bible studies, um, I asked Christ into my heart. That's awesome. Great. How about you, Erin? Okay, well, um, Brian and I actually grew up um, near each other. We went to the same junior high and high school. And But unlike Brian, 
I, I grew up in a very well-churched family. Church was very important um, to me. It was a central part of my life. I was very involved. But as I became a teenage, teenager, you know, if you had asked me if I was a Christian, I would have said yes because I belonged to a church. I was a good person, um, pretty moral, stayed out of trouble. Um, and then it was when I went to Baylor a year after Brian, and um, I was a freshman, and it was then that I really um, started hearing the true gospel, and I heard it, and I understood it, and I realized that what was missing was a personal relationship with Christ. And so that year was a similar kind of thing where God used um, individual people who really just came into my life and um, just reached out to me and challenged me. He used Bible studies, both large and small, and um, the Old Testament and New Testament classes. And through that year, um, I accepted Christ. Wow. Well, that's great. Now, we've been talking about giving. How did you guys initially even get started in the whole giving process? You want to feel that one, Erin? Sure. So a couple of years after that, we were still going to that choice Bible study that, that um, Brian mentioned and that Louie taught. And um, one night they had uh, Compassion International came and shared about what the work that they're doing in the lives of children um, who are in extreme poverty, living in extreme poverty all over the world. And we became... Just our eyes were just open to these just the great needs that were out there, and they challenged this group of college students to step out in faith and to sponsor a child. And so Brian and I weren't engaged yet, but we knew that we were going to be getting married, and we decided to sponsor a child together. And so that was neat. That was kind of our next step in faith, and just how God was teaching us to um, learn to trust Him with our finances and to give sacrificially. We sponsored a little boy named Danny in Ecuador, and. Um, that's been a joy, and it's something that we've continued doing today with, with our kids. Wow, that's awesome. Now, Brian, how did, how did you start developing your theology of, of giving? What did that look like? Well, so we started with Compassion International as broke college students, and then when we graduated, we became broke young marrieds, and <laughs> we got plugged into Bible churches in Dallas, a couple different ones, um, and it was there that we just continued to, to read and, and understand Scripture a little bit more, and thankfully, we've never been part of a church or an organization where we felt that finances were pushed heavy-handed or where you were felt under compulsion or like you were, you know, less than saved if you didn't give a certain amount. But as we examine the scriptures, just like we did today, you see there's a lot of verses on money. And we started to understand that worship wasn't just when somebody's up here leading us in music and it's not just then when we have a sermon or our own quiet time, but worship involves what we do with our, our time as stewards and with our money as stewards. And so, we again, we were extremely poor <laughs> at the time. We both had jobs, but uh, I was working for free trying to break into the industry I wanted to be in. And long story, but there was one particular 30-day 30, 30 period where something was going to have to give um, by the end of 30 days. And we had been praying faithfully towards this end. God, if you don't provide by normal means, we're going to have to do something different. And this is often the case with us, at least, on the 30th day at 5 o'clock, Somebody from where I was working for free came in and said, hey, we just realized we need somebody to be an administrative assistant for an office person on Monday morning. Can you do that? I'm like, that's just what I wanted. But it paid. <laughs> so it paid. So we started making more money, and we didn't immediately go to, let's just give 10%, you know, as our, as our benchmark. But we wanted to quickly, as soon as we felt like we could see a way to get there, start you know, ratcheting up our, our giving. And so where we have ended up through the years is, for us, a 10% tithe is, was kind of our baseline giving that we target for giving to the church, like to our general operating fund here. And then 15 years ago, 
here in this church, we were preparing for phase one, which is where we're sitting for this building. And as we prepared for phase one, we started thinking more about what does the above and beyond look like for us. And so in the past, and, and still today, sometimes above and beyond is giving to missionaries or like a Compassion International or Banjara or something, um, other needs. But then for, for this building campaign, we thought, okay, let's, let's stretch ourselves and, and commit to, to giving for, for this building. And so you know, now here we are with phase two, and we're getting to examine that again, and as are some of you, I'm sure. So that's kind of how we have ended up and, and evolved toward just trying to give a benchmark and then see how we can give over and above. Hmm. Well, that's great. Now, uh, Aaron, I'll just ask you, apparently you guys take what you learn, you try to pass it on to your family. What, what, is that, what does that look like at the Davis home? Well, when our, oh, <laughs> about that. When our kids were young, um, we talked about how we could train them to learn to manage their money and really not to see it as their money, but as God's money, as with all their resources, and to see them as stewards. And so we decided that when they were old enough to start earning um, money for chores that they did around the house, um, that we would divide that money into three different parts. And so we used a tool called My Giving Bank for young kids, and um, we just, Brian and I decided on the percentages we wanted to work with, and we took a certain percentage off the top of that money, their income that they would earn, and we put that in the church, and that was the money that they would bring for offering, or out of that money could also be used um, for vacation Bible school missions or other special things that they wanted to give to. And then also another percentage of their income would go to their bank, which was their savings, their long-term savings. And then the rest of that, the balance, would go to their store, which is their spending money. And so we've tried, we've worked with the kids trying to um, help them to spend their money wisely, but also enjoy it, and there's a balance there. Um, but they enjoy um, taking their church money, their giving money, and bringing it, and especially the younger kids putting it in their little envelope with their loose change and small bills and bringing it in and putting it in the in the offering. <clears throat> me. And, and then as, as they get older, like our 13-year-old, she's doing that more independently now, and she doesn't use the little plastic uh, thing with mm. the cute stickers on it anymore. But, um, <laughs> but it, that's been fun seeing them to learn how to give joyfully. Well, that's awesome. Well, I, we want to thank you for just taking a few minutes just for us to let you let us see your hearts and how God has been at work. So why don't we all together pray? We've just heard the Davis family. They're on a journey. Guess what? We're all on a journey and we're growing to maturity in Christ together. So let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you so much for the privilege it is just to come before you, the living God. And for someone who has come here today who's never trusted in Jesus, they don't actually have enjoyment because they don't have you. Lord, would you right now draw them to yourself and would they just simply pray with me and say, God, I turn from the God of finances. I turn from myself and I just trust in your son Jesus as the Lord and Savior of my life. And for all of us, Lord, we pray that every aspect of our being, including how we use our finances, would honor and glorify you. We ask this as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.